If you're new to New Hope, you won't find the pastor always goes without socks. Just <laughs> like to see how fast you could change. <laughs> um, throughout the course of teaching Revelation, I've had a number of individuals approach me about what are good resources, what are good study materials. A couple weeks ago, I referred to, uh, not to be cute, but the, the book, uh, Revelation for Dummies, okay? And uh, not to imply anything about our congregation either. Um, the second one I want to recommend to you also has an um, unusual name, but it's very well done. It's called The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Book of Revelation, okay? And I know they're trying to be funny with the cover, but the material inside is really good if you're looking for a basic resource to help guide you through these studies that we're going through, because as you realize, this is our 14th week in this, and there's 43 total weeks, so we got uh, 29 more weeks to go. All right. So if you're looking for something a little deeper, um, this particular book is called Revelation Unveiled. You can get it at your local Christian bookstore. It really takes the text apart piece by piece, breaks it down. You might really enjoy this particular book. You can come up and look at it later and see if it's something that you're interested in. Well, let's uh, take a minute and ask God to guide us as we go through this teaching this morning. Would you do that with me? Father, we want to take a minute to uh, mostly catch my breath. Um, thank you for the privilege of being able to be part of something so celebratory that you could watch us enter into water and come back out as a statement of who we belong to is just powerful imagery. So we thank you for the new beginning and for the, the statement of obedience on behalf of Tim and Chris and Garrett. And thank you for the statement they've made before the church today. We pray, Father, as we look into these words that um, admittedly are complicated and complex as we look at future things and we deal with the end times. Um, we'd even say our heart is stirred as we look at something like an earthquake in Brazil yesterday, saying, God, what are you up to? So many earthquakes in such a short period of time. We know that you've given us signs, you've given us indications, but you've given us the book of Revelation, the word of God, as the greatest indication of what we are to look for. So as your church, as people who are earnestly looking to know you better, to know your nature and character, we ask that your spirit would just hover over this place right now and infuse us with understanding. Give us the capacity to see the things that you want us to see. We'll be content with that. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm convinced as I look through scripture that um, Jesus didn't take a marketing 101 class. As I think about good marketing slogans, I think uh, specifically about um, the United States Army with a, a military term in the 80s when it said, um, we're gonna launch this new marketing campaign to draw young people into the armed forces. And so they launched this campaign called Be All You Can Be. And they went really strong with that for like 15 years. Be all you can be, measure up to your greatness. And about the late 90s, they came out with a new one, an army of one. I remember the first time I saw that, I thought, wow, cool. That's really gonna resonate with this generation. That's a strong marketing theme to draw people into a cause, into a purpose. 
What I'd like you to see this morning up on the screen is this particular verse that'll prove that Jesus didn't take a marketing class. <laughs> it's not exactly what you would choose if you're trying to get people excited about joining a cause, is it? You will be hated by all men. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end that will be saved. He doesn't even say that you'll be saved if you just do it for a little while. You have to endure to the end. You have to be an overcomer. But in the meantime, you're going to be hated. Now, just in case you think that Jesus was playing with words, let me show you the definition for the word hated in Greek. Maseo, to detest, especially to persecute. So that convinces me he didn't take a marketing class, nor was he interested in drawing people in through clever tactics, but rather to recognize that what they were about to enter into was an adventure unlike anyone could ever possibly imagine to walk with the King of Kings. So I asked myself this question, what does it mean to wear the label, the chosen people? to be God's chosen people, to be this group set apart, to be identified as Christians means we wear the name of Jesus Christ. So I take myself one step further. What about God's true original chosen people, the Jews? Think about the time in Genesis when God spoke specifically to Abraham. Face to face, Scripture says, as a man speaks to a man. And he said this to him, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now if I'm Abraham and I'm hearing that, I'm thinking, cool when I hear the blessed part. But when he says, some people are gonna curse you, I'd say if I'm Abraham, time out, whoa, 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 whoa. what's this about cursing me? What do you mean cursed? If I'm blessed, why are people gonna curse me? You know that in the world today, there are 13.2 million Jews. 13.2, maybe a little bit more than that, as last year's census. Of the 13.2 million Jews, nearly every one of them could point back to a time in history if they were pressed to ask how the world has received them. The 13.2 million Jews who make up the surface of the earth right now would say, we have been hated as a people. We have been despised. We have actually been hunted as a people. Now think of it. Pharaoh, first one, launch an assault against them. Move forward in time, Romans launch an assault against them. Spanish Inquisitions, Adolf Hitler, Nazi Germany. Today, the Arab world, they just as soon wipe them off the face of the earth. What does it mean to be God's people? When Jesus says, you will be hated by all men, means that there's a force out there, contrary to God, who wants to take the people of God out of the picture. They've sought to exterminate the Jewish people because they're identified as the people of God. Let me take you back to 70 AD, to a time that Jesus spoke about we understand historically, archaeologically, that this is the point in time when the Jewish nation, as it was known, ceased to exist. What you see here is an artist's rendition of the assault by the Romans on Jerusalem, seeking to exterminate the Jewish people. 
Now, if you look very closely down in the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see a couple soldiers holding up what looks like a candelabra. It's a menorah, a Jewish menorah that was kept within the temple in the holy place before God, always burning before God. Today, archaeologically, if you would go to Rome, you would see this arch that I want you to notice on the screen. This particular arch is called the Arch of Titus. This represents a victory arch that the Romans erected after they obliterated the nation of Israel. If you look closely with inside that arch, this arch you'll find this engraving. Do you notice what the soldiers are lifting up at the very top, hoisting? What they're demonstrating as the symbol of victory over the Jewish people is carrying the menorah back into Rome. They took it captive, the articles from the temple. Archaeologically, you can see that today. We know that that event happened, wiped out as a people. So to be a Jew is to be a survivor. But they're preserved for a purpose. And what's the purpose? What was the preservation for? You see, Israel's very existence today, that small little country laying on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, their very existence today is the undeniable evidence of the infallibility of God's word. Absolutely everything that he said would happen would happen. How do I know that? Because God's word said thousands of years ago that one nation out of all the nations in the earth would pop back into existence on one day. Look at this verse from scripture. This comes from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 8. This is what the old prophet said. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? Absolutely unimaginable that Israel in 1948 would be reconstituted as a nation. No nation in the history of mankind has ever gone out of existence and then resurface again. Yet because God said it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. He promised that it would happen. So God will not let the world forget Israel. He has a great future for the Jewish people. You're about to find out this morning what that is. Let me step you forward into modern times. Last year, survey done of the population of the nation of Israel. That nation grew by 1.8%. So of the 7.6 million inhabitants of the nation of Israel today, they experienced 1.8% population growth, which is remarkable in this day and age. Do you know that 18% of the population growth of Israel last year was accounted for by people who live in other nations moving to Israel. Not just people, Jewish people. Jewish descent, which is fulfillment of what the prophets wrote 2,500 years ago would happen in the last days. Look with me on the screen. This is what Ezekiel wrote. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. Last day's prophecy being fulfilled in your lifetime. Whether it's a thousand years away, 500 years away, or a year away, I have no idea. 
God says he's not going to reveal to us when that is. But the indicators are he's bringing some plan into work, isn't he? So from 1948, we see this nation of Israel continue to grow. So where am I going with this? Keep your eyes on the Middle East. Everything that God says in the book of Revelation and in the prophecies are pointing towards the Middle East. It is no surprise that God chose to store all the energy for the world within the Middle East and we continue to watch the uprisings take place. So let's do a brief review of how we got to where we're at right now before we step into Revelation chapter seven. We have John as a man who wrote this book on the island of Patmos, standing as a prisoner of Rome in which God began to reveal to him the things that were going to happen in the future. So this book of Revelation was writ written as a result of that. And what John saw in his vision after he understood who Christ was, he saw Jesus standing with this scroll that we've been watching laid open as we've been studying this text. And at each time he popped a seal on the scroll, we found that there was a new judgment that came out upon the earth. Last week where we left off at was with the sixth of the seven seals. So six of the seven seals have been opened and the seventh seal, which you're going to find next week, is going to usher in a series of judgments unlike anything the world has ever known. It gets more and more intense. But here we find an intermission. God calls a time out. He takes us into a passage here that is just remarkable. God says, hey, we're going to take an intermission here. Before we get into chapter 8 and the next seal, we're going to have a hush all over the earth. Matter of fact, Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 says, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Can you imagine? You remember what you learned in the last few weeks where we see that the angels bow down before God, constantly praising him? But yet, he takes this period of time and says, there's silence. So where we find ourselves right now is in the eye of the hurricane. The storm is brewing all around and we're in the center and it's getting very, very silent. And in the midst of this silence, we hear this question being echoed from last week. Who can stand? You remember that? The judgments took place and at the very end of it, those who were part of these massive earthquakes shouted up to God because of the fear of God, because of the wrath of the Lamb. They shouted out, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? They asked the desperate question. They're scared to death. Luke says that they literally faint because of fear. They collapse in their heart. They're calling for the rocks to crush them because it's getting so intense. What you're going to find is chapter seven answers the question, who can stand? Who can endure this period of time? Did you know that there's some that will survive the tribulation period? Through the end, they will enter into the millennial kingdom. They'll survive Antichrist, the beast, 666. They'll survive the plagues, the fires, the earthquakes, everything that takes place because they're protected by God. Now why in the world do we find a group of people who are believers in God still on planet Earth after the tribulation takes place. After the, I'm sorry, once the rapture takes place and the church is removed, you got the tribulation going. 
and you find a group of believers here, what's going on with this group that we're about to learn about this morning? That's the number one question that's, that people say. How in the world do people come to faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of the tribulation? You've got all this chaos going around. The church has been taken away, and yet people are coming to faith in Christ. I'm glad you asked that question. Let's look at Revelation chapter seven and verse one. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up there. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you'll find them in the pew racks in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you are welcome to take one of those with you when you leave today. They're there for that purpose, so that you would own your own copy of of God's word. But you'll see all the text up on the screen as well. And this is how it starts out. John says, after this, after I saw four angels, after this I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. He says, after this, after what? Between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, in the middle, after this. I watched the sixth seal open, the seventh one hasn't opened yet. You've got four angels and it says standing at the four corners of the earth. This is an ancient Hebrew idiom for the four quadrants of the world, meaning north, south, east, and west. Now, throughout the years, many have taken shots at this, saying, well, the church is so antiquated, they actually believe in a flat earth theory. They believe that there's corners. Let me show you a uh, geophysicist who actually wrote a quote about this, who's a believer, so you understand a scientific explanation for this. This verse has long been derided as reflecting a naive pre-scientific concept of earth structure, one that supposedly viewed the earth as flat with four corners. In terms of modern technology, it is essentially equivalent to what a mariner or a geologist would call the four quadrants of the compass or the four directions. This is evident also from the mention of the four winds, which in common usage would of course be the north, west, south, and east winds. That's from Dr. Henry Morris. So what this says specifically is God has sovereign control. It speaks to his dominance over the globe, his authority. So these angels are standing back and they received a command saying, hold back the four winds of the earth, which is telling us there's a great storm that's about to be unleashed. And these four mighty beings are holding back this force. Look specifically with me at this word holding, krateo. It means to use strength. This is a literal word. This is not imagery. This is a literal word to seize, grasp, or hold fast, to lay hold on, to restrain. So four very powerful beings who are holding back this great storm that's about to burst upon the planet Earth. It's hard to comprehend, isn't it, a time when there's no wind. We know that the hydrological cycles that we have here on the Earth come from the sun's energy and from the Earth's rotation. And wind brings us rain, it waters the ground, it moves pollution out, it brings pollen. But the scriptures say there's a period of time, forever how long we don't know, in which these angels restrain the wind. No breeze, no waves lapping on the seashore. A bad day for windsurfers, okay? Nothing going on the angels turn off the engine of the hydrological cycle and everything stops. So verse two says this, 
And I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their forehead. So now he sees another angel, a fifth one, another of the same kind, similar looking. And he's ascending from the rising sun. What does that mean? That's a poetic way of saying the east. He looked to the east and saw this fifth powerful angel commanding authoritatively, do not harm the earth or the sea. And he's carrying something remarkable in his hand. You see that? It says he has a seal. The word is phragis. Look at the Greek definition for this word seal. Phragis, a signet, as fencing in or protecting. By implication, the stamp impressed as a mark of genuineness, a seal. In ancient times, you would find that kings wore a very special signet ring on their ring finger in which they would impress upon wax not only documents that were sealed, like this scroll that we're learning about, but also title deeds. They would put soft wax at the bottom of the title, and the king would press his ring finger into that wax, leaving his mark. In other words, meaning, I own this. This is mine. So that's why it says fencing in, because it's come under the king's protection. So it has the seal. You find this in other places in the Old Testament, speaking specifically of signet rings. Remember when we studied the life of Joseph? Look at this verse, Genesis 41, 42. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Now something remarkable about this particular ring. He says this phragis is the phragis of the living God. It's not just the ring of a king, of an earthly ruler. This is the ring owned by God. It's his protection, his security. Do you know that every one of you, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have the stamp of God on you, the phragis, the mark of the Holy Spirit. That's what Scripture promises us, that you have been sealed. Look at this, Ephesians 1.13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were fraudulent, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the presence of the Spirit of God, of the Holy Spirit, is in every single Christian. It's an unmistakable mark of God's ownership of you, fencing you in, meaning your soul is protected for eternity. You cannot be taken if you name the name of Jesus Christ. And it happens the instant that we trust God. That's a very cool thing, isn't it, to think of? Now, he doesn't say, I'm going to protect your physical life. I'm protecting your soul, long-term life. But what you're about to see here is a group of individuals who have not only their soul sealed for all eternity because they've named the name of Jesus Christ, but they also get something like a force field put around them. They're sealed physically. Look with me in your Bibles. This one's not going to be up on the screen. Turn to Revelation chapter 9. Just two chapters over from where you're at. Revelation chapter 9 talks specifically about this fragis being on a group of people. Kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card, okay? Think of it that way. These guys are going to be protected in such a way that nothing can harm them. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. 
Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So these individuals who are receiving this seal we're about to learn about have the protection of God physically around them. That tells me that God is able to preserve us no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on in the chaos of the earth. If he chooses to, he can protect you no matter what's going on. So we find in true form, Antichrist, the, the image of the beast, the one who has 666 says, okay, I've got my own seal. Look at this text here in, in Scripture from Revelation 13, 16. And he, Antichrist, causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And what you learned in the last couple weeks is if people don't have that individual mark on their right hand or on their forehead, they will not be able to do business in the last days. They will not be able to participate in the world's economy. They will be shut out. But this particular mark that's put upon them, it's not a fragis. It's not a king saying, I own you. Look at the word for it. It's called kargma. This is what Antichrist puts on his people. A scratch or an etching, a stamp as a badge of servitude. So this kargma that goes upon those who worship Antichrist will get this kargma on them, which doesn't protect them other than the fact that it protects their physical life because he will not kill them. So we see authoritatively this fifth angel cries out with a really loud voice, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. You notice that they're called bondservants already? Before they're sealed? That means they're believers before this angel arrives. They're already professing the name of God. He calls them the bondservants. At this point, they're being protected. Up till now, they've been witnessing on behalf of God. But at this point, God says, I need to seal them and protect them with a fragis to protect their life so that they can what? Continue to proclaim the word of God so that they can keep going forward. And do you notice where they get the mark? They get the mark on their forehead. Now what in the world does that look like? I took this little piece of sticky note. It says right here, I belong to Jesus, okay? Can you imagine walking around every place you go with this image on you? We don't know what it looks like. We have no idea what this image will look like. But somehow, these guys are gonna get a tattoo. They're gonna get God's seal put upon their forehead. And what does it literally look like? This is what scripture says it is. Look with me at Revelation 14.1. Then I looked, and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Invincible warriors of God. And they've got this mark upon them. They are not secret service Christians. 
They're not hiding, okay? The witness is out there. They're straightforward for God, and they're bold, and they're on fire. Now, since the rapture has already occurred, according to my understanding of Scripture, since the church has already been taken away, God must raise up a new witness nation. In the Old Testament, the witness nation were the people of Israel, the Jewish people. In the church age, it's us. You are the witness nation speaking on behalf of God. In the future, with the church removed, God needs to raise up a new witness nation. So who are these first converts of the tribulation? Look at verse four. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 fragis from every tribe of the sons of Israel. In the Old Testament, God put marks upon people. He sealed Cain. After Cain killed Abel and he was afraid for his life, God put a mark upon him so that no one would harm him. He protected him. You remember Rahab? God protected Rahab, didn't he? He gave her a mark, the scarlet thread, saying that you will be protected by us. So throughout Scripture, you see God's mark. Think in terms of the Passover, the Jewish Passover. The blood over the door, the blood of the lamb, the mark of God that God's wrath would pass over them. So what you see here is not something necessarily new, but biblical terminology only permits this phrase, the sons of Israel, to refer to ethnic Jews, those who are of the heritage of Abraham. So that's the way the structure of the sentence is used, and we've got this spiritual vacuum left by the rapture, and it's quickly filled by these 144,000. If you go later today and you read in Revelation 14, you'll see a description of these individuals. Revelation 14.4 specifically says they are holy, they are pure, they are undefiled, they are bold witnesses for the king. Nothing stops them or stands in their way. Now this expression that's used, they're called the first fruits to God, it literally means they're the first ones but there's many more who will follow. There are many more Jews who will turn to God. Right now, the Jewish nation is fairly liberal. There's a fairly small percentage of individuals who actually worship God. There's an extraordinarily small percentage, and we're talking minute, who actually recognize Jesus as Messiah. As a whole, the nation has turned its back on Jesus. But Paul said, there will be a day when the entire nation will be saved. As a matter of fact, he specifically said, all Israel will be saved. In the Old Testament, the prophets said, there's a day coming when the Jewish people will look upon the one they crucified and they will mourn and they will grieve and they will turn back to God. That will happen in the last days. Look with me on the screen at Zechariah 12.10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. They're going to understand who Jesus is. The rapture takes place. All the Christians are gone. And they get it. And they're grieved in their heart. And out of that grieving rises this 144,000 strong witnesses for God.
Now these last few verses wrap up the section we're going to look at today. I'm going to read each one. Even though it seems redundant, there's a purpose in it. Look with me at verse 5. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were fraudulous, sealed by the living God. Many of the high school students in the church have my cell phone number. They, they text me occasionally. About five months ago, I was at a lunch meeting with some friends, and this text message came through. And this is what it said. Um, this kid across the table from me says he's one of the 144,000. Uh, what is that? <laughs> so I sent my text back, slow as I am, and, and uh, I said, uh, ask him if he's Jehovah's Witness. And 30 seconds, dead air goes by. My phone vibrates, flipped it open. How did you know? <laughs> there are uh, individuals who believe within the Mormon church and the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and other organizations that these 144,000 belong to them. That's who they are. That's error. That's not truth. The truth is these are Jews. These are the select people of God, the ones who have been chosen to wear the name of God. There's some interesting details and things that take place within that listing that I won't go into right now, but imagine this with me. 144,000 Pauls roaming the earth. Apollos's, Peter, James. Not those guys literally, but with that passion, when they realize that everything that was written in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the world, you'll see, you'll see a return to Christ like the world has never known. And among the Jewish people, that's why Paul could say, all Israel will be saved. They'll turn back. Because of this, God always has an earthly witness. He never has a period of time when there aren't a group of people on the planet Earth to exalt him. And these are just the beginning in the end times. We are the witness nation right now. We are the ones with the names of Jesus Christ upon us. We need to carry that proudly. And as bold as these individuals are, this critical passage reinforces something to me. First of all, God is not done with the Jewish people at all. It also tells me that he is faithful to his word. You cannot look at the events of 1948 and see this nation rise up out of the dust and say, that's just coincidence. Oh, my friend, no way. That is the word of God coming to life. And it is powerful. And it points us to the futures to say, wow, God wants these Jewish people around. And he's faith, faithful to his word. And it appears to me that if these individuals in the last days, in the midst of all this chaos, can witness for Jesus Christ and turn people to the king, what does that say for you and me? I mean, we live in a relatively comfortable time. There's no force opposing us. 
other than Jesus said, the world's going to hate you, but you got this label. He says, you belong to me, and if you endure to the end, you will be saved. It's a power of powerful thought. What does it mean to wear the label of God? It's the question I'm going to leave you with today. It's a question to ponder this week. As you go out and you take on your activities, if I had a little sticky note on my forehead, every place I went, how would I live differently? So let's ponder that together. Let's pray. Father, your word promises that we have your seal upon us, that your Holy Spirit has set up a fence, a protection of our soul, because we name the name of Jesus Christ, and that cannot be taken. So Father, with that in mind, for my brothers and sisters in this room, for those who name the name of Christ, boys and girls all the way to the oldest adult, make us as bold as these 144,000. Let us go forward, Father, with a conviction in our heart that we represent the King of Kings and let nothing turn us back. Father, your word promised that the gates of hell would not defeat your church. Make us that bold, Father, that we push against the gates of hell. Convict us, Father. In the midst of this day, when we don't even know what kind of activities are going to unfold this afternoon, what's going to happen tomorrow when we walk into the office or back into school, give us that conviction that we wear the name of Jesus upon us. Father, I ask this in boldness for this church. Allow us to be bold on your behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have an excellent week.